Daniel mentions I'm unscripted when he's saying it's just in prep. No, just kidding. I do have a script. I'm just not very good at reading it sometimes. Uh, hey, friends. Uh, welcome to Central Vineyard. I know uh, everyone's here. Everyone has had probably a set of good and negative circumstances that have led to them being here today. This week has been full of probably good news for many of you and full of bad news for many of you. And many of us have to deal with both, of experiencing good news and bad news. I know uh, just talking to one of my friends today and have talked with families, I think most of us know at this point, which is new to me, uh, throughout this whole COVID epidemic, I've really known too many people with COVID. And now I know like a dozen people with COVID-19. Um, and uh, I talked to another loved one who kind of was in the same boat, another friend, and, and actually had someone who's my age just die of COVID, my age. And uh, there's a lot of families in mourning. There's a lot of families uh, who are wondering how they're going to pay hospital bills. There's a lot of families hoping that uh, their friends pull through. So we're going through a time where there's a lot of grieving and a lot of fear right now. And in part, it's just this recent outbreak of COVID, it's strange because people are either feeling super free or super constrained right now based on the medical interventions uh, they've received. And uh, it's just interesting that uh, uh, Babylon is an evolving force. Babylon never stays the same. There's a Babylon after Babylon after Babylon, but I think... Uh, uh, What's interesting in our modern world is there's a two section of Babylon because with the positive, with the real positive development of like democracy and republics, the idea of governed by the people and for the people, governments, there's always a double-edged sword. And part of that, uh, in our version of Babylon, what is different from Daniel's version of Babylon. In Daniel's version of Babylon, no one had a vote, no one could make a choice, Faithfulness meant you have to live under the thumb of one person, not a bunch of people. And faithfulness meant that you had to follow God despite that. Well, we have a two-tiered Babylon now. And what Babylon is, because we all have some level of power in our, in our nation or world. We have a certain level of individual rights that prior to the invention of democracy, no one had in the history of the world. And we have this wonder, we have freedom. We can actually, uh, we have complete freedom of religion in a way that most people in the world up to this point, and even at, many at this point don't enjoy. But the other end of freedom, the way Babylon gets in, and Babylon corrupts everything. Because Babylon, it's like water, it finds its way, it finds the cracks. And the cracks of liberty is individualism. The cracks within liberty are no one is the boss of me, which often means including God. The cracks in liberty uh, also have led to the emergence, you know, in the enlightenment of self as God. And what, it's very interesting because for years, like this message that went to Daniel was there's going to be empire after empire after empire, but God is actually in the ultimate throne and you can be faithful because God's in the throne. And what a lot of people would be tempted to believe is, hey, once Babylon is over, then I'll be free. Uh-oh, 
Medo-Persian Empire. Once the Medo-Persian Empire is gone, then I'll be free. Uh-oh, uh, the Greeks. Once the Greeks uh, uh, are done, then I'm free. Uh-oh, uh, now we've got four uh, fighting dynasties between the fall. You know, uh, Alexander died. Then once these guys are destroyed each other, then I'll be free. And then you get like, Israel has like 23 years of the Hasmonean dynasty where they think they're free. But 23 years, that's not even, once their kids get off to Hebrew college and then bam, freedom's over again. The Romans are in charge. And then a Romans, uh, one smart Roman says, hey, I'm going to corrupt this fast-growing religion of Christianity and make them the official national language. And thus, uh, the Jesus' faith was kind of began to be corrupted by nationalism, by Constantine. And then people said, now we'll have freedom. And what happened is Christians learned to separate their faith from, or they learn to compromise their faith for power or confuse power for their faith. And what happened is then we get all these arguments now that atheists will throw in our face saying, you know why Christianity isn't true? Because the Crusades, because all the violence done in the name of Jesus, this, that, and the other. So what happened is this freedom, this, this freedom that people thought they got because the government powers were on their side. They thought, oh, now we have freedom. But what happened is they, weren't, they thought they were freed from Babylon, but what happened is they became Babylon. And Babylon became an individual choice. And the representatives of Babylon, like mobile Babylonian outposts. And what happened in the name of Jesus, falsely appropriating the do, do justice, love mercy, like, what does, oh God, what does God require here? To do justice, love mercy, and act humbly. You know, climax of the Old Testament, Micah 6, 8. Do justice, act humbly, love mercy, got put on the shelf, put in a nice plexiglass container or whatever, and then it was, you know, make justice happen by conquering other people. But then you literally got to this point where people in the name of Jesus started battling each other. And you even had in Calvin's Geneva, Switzerland, where he took one group of Christians and executed them. And we see versions of this today. Right now, there are places of worship that have crosses hanging up in their church where they're literally talking the talk of Babylon. And the thing is, is the us versus them doesn't work when Babylon has colonized the spirit of individualism. And the idea right now, so we all battle Babylon of the heart. So when we talk about empire, when we talk about empire, we're not just talking about those people. We're talking about battling the empire of our own individual rebellion. There is empire at the gate in every relationship I have. There is empire trying to corrupt my marriage and corrupt my work as a husband and as a father and a friend. And part of following Jesus is to always acknowledge there's probably some empire in me that I don't know about and be open to people calling it out. Part of this, so the hope, what we get from this passage that Daniel kind of summarized today, it, it will read parts of, or maybe all of, we'll see. Uh, the hope isn't the end of this deal or the end of that deal. In fact, the hope of this passage, of this particular vision, the hope of this vision isn't that things are going to be easy. In Daniel's lifetime, things are never 
going to be easy. Israel will be able to go back home. In fact, uh, King Cyrus actually, and Artaxerxes and others engaged in the practice, I think the first recorded example in history of reparations, where they spend a ton of money to care for the nation of Israel based on the injustices that were per perpetrated on Israel uh, many generations prior to that. So justices perpetrated against Israel, some pagan kings somehow came up with this idea of monetarily spending their limited, their resources, their finite resources of the kingdom in reestablishing Israel. So if anyone ever talks, throws around Cyrus as an example of like a, a, a leader who takes care of God's people, the way he took care of God's people was actually multi-generational reparations, which is weird. I mean, that's just, that's a little weird. I've been reading a book on the theology of that, and it's really astonishing. And that's just Bible. I mean, you just read the Old Testament. I didn't make any of this up, I promise. So anyway, we have Cyrus, we, but what happened is Israel never repented. We have no accounts, even though Israel was able to go back to their homeland, the reasons they went to captivity. One, they never celebrated the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee in the Torah was insurance that you wouldn't have more than one generation of poverty in a family line. It meant if you had a bad harvest, you lost everything, you would sell your land to someone else, but they would only be sold until the next year of Jubilee, which was at most 70 years from now. Usually, be like, okay, it's 30 years, so I'm going to buy a 30-year lease on your property, and then it's going to revert back to you. And that was Jubilee. And the idea ensured that people would go work for whoever they sold their land to, and that person would build profits, but eventually their grandkids would have the land back. So in the way God set up the nation of Israel to function, there wasn't like multi-generational poverty. Now in America, we had a lot of, actually many people don't know this, we had a lot of majority culture or so-called white-owned businesses that class or lower income white people that had to compete with slave owners. So you're a blacksmith, but then this plantation has slaves that do blacksmithing who can undercut you on everything. So you had all these small businesses that couldn't compete. And we actually have so much multi-generational poverty. If you go through Appalachia and you see, you wonder how, I mean, you look at the forgotten part of our country. I've been, as I told you some weeks ago, I've been watching a lot of documentaries on Appalachia. You have a whole people group that have kind of been left behind. You know, their schools are garbage because their property isn't worth anything and their property taxes generate no money to pay for their schooling. So their kids get even crappier education than they got if they get anything. Usually they're out of school by age 13. And you know, that, that actually began in the time of slavery. So we've seen this uh, impact of what multi-generational poverty can do. But the whole point is, first reason Israel was in captivity, because I said that to someone, I explained the economic system of the Torah, and this guy told me, he goes, that's the coolest bleep and bleep thing I've ever read. And I said, yeah, too bad no one's tried it. Uh, Jubilee uh, was the greatest economic, it's the most brilliant economic system that was never tried. The other reason is Israel was always reminded, oh Israel, you were strangers once. Welcome the strangers, welcome the immigrants, welcome the displaced, welcome the stateless. And uh, you can read a book, any of the book by Rupin Das, he's an amazing theologian, unpacks what was meant by the immigrant term 
in the scriptures. It's so multidimensional. But anyway, uh, so they didn't welcome immigrants. And also, they didn't care for the poor and the fatherless and the widow. They didn't care for people that through familial circumstance, either death of a spouse or leaving of a spouse or something, they didn't care for the people who, by no choice of them, life had dealt them a bad hand. And uh, the other thing is Israel engaged in a specific foreign policy that uh, the ten tribes and then the remainder two tribes, they made political alliances. God, you're not supposed to talk politics in church, but I'm just talking about what Israel did. So Israel practiced, engaged in this practice of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, which many people have heard. That's kind of like a, a proverb of sort that many people adhere to. They made alliances with pagan nations. Every single prophet yelled at them about, like, what are you doing? And they made alliances with pagan nations to protect them from other nations. And God, and what they ended up actually doing is they ruffled the feathers of the most powerful nation. And while they're making the alliances, the powerful nations come in and conquer them. So actually, their attempt to protect themselves by making alliances with people who were enemies of God ended up giving them their own judgment. Their own judgment came from the consequences. So that's why Israel was in captivity. Well, we see after Israel comes back due to you know, Cyrus, Artaxerxes, and the others, when Israel is able to come back to their land, nothing changes. And they just keep getting oppressed and oppressed again until we get to Jesus. And Jesus addresses Israel as though they are still in captivity. And Jesus' favorite book was the book of Daniel. He quoted from last week's chapter more than any other chapter in the scriptures. His own name, though all these people called him Christ, and Jesus is like, yeah, that's me. I'm Christ. Bring it. Come on. But he always called himself the Son of Man because that was code to say, hey, you've read Daniel. You know the hope it talks about? That's me. I am the promised one. You are living in Babylon. I'm the one that actually will take you out of captivity. And that captivity is not just the captivity that Israel was in, but that captivity is a captivity that humankind is in. That's why the word, when it talks about Jesus returning and coming in the air, we talk about that. People have all these theories of like God beams up people at a specific time so Christians won't have to suffer. And I'm like, well, Christians suffer every day, so he was a little slow on the beaming up uptake, if that's true. But the idea of Jesus coming to the air is, remember, Jesus came to Israel, and he rode in on the opposite end of Pilate. Pilate would have entered one end with a big royal parade. Jesus comes in on a little donkey. Jesus rides his baby donkey. It's like one of those ridiculous pictures. Like, you ever see those 400-pound twins who ride mopeds? The twin moped guys from the 70s, you remember that? That's what it looked like for Jesus riding a little donkey. So all these people are parading him, and he's riding a little clown bike to get in. He's like, I can even do this, and I'm still all-powerful. So Jesus comes in, but he came to Israel. But when Jesus comes back, he doesn't touch pace. He doesn't touch ground on a piece of America, or a piece of Israel, or a piece of Egypt, or a piece of Kazakhstan. Jesus is met in the air, saying when Jesus returns, he comes to all peoples, every tribe, tongue, and nation. The only grouping of people that matters is the people of God that know allegiance to one nation, and that is the kingdom of God. And they're aliens living amidst other people. Like Israel were sojourners, 
We are perpetual sojourners. We're perpetual non-joiners. That doesn't mean we're non-participants. David, I mean, Daniel and his guys didn't go and start some commune somewhere where they refused to have anything to do with Babylon. They actually served in Babylon. The people of Israel ran the food courts of Babylon. They swept the floors of Babylon. They, they ran the trash system. They kept the ancient sewers running. The people of Israel were called to pray for the peace of Babylon. They were ministers of Babylon, or intended to be. God saw the Babylonian sojourn as a time for spiritual formation. In our time, in our culture right now, we are given a choice. I'm kind of giving the overview. We are given a choice to pledge allegiance to our nation, or if you're tuning in uh, from uh, Uzbekistan, you, you're given the choice to pledge allegiance to your nation or whatever, or we pledge to the kingdom where Christ is returning, not touching base on any, within any of our specific borders, but calling us to because that is the Jesus we serve. We serve, behold the line of the tribe of Israel, and as the Apostle John looked in his book of Revelation, was kind of a tribute song to the book of Daniel. Like, he's like, I'm going to write a song in the genre of Daniel. You know, and uh, we have that. And they look, and I saw a lamb. So the lion is a lamb. Well, now this passage that Adrian read, Psalm 139, which is kind of why I've gone off my notes, because the Lectio, they did kind of change things a little for me. A lot of people say, oh, I noticed I opened up my Bible and just as the song gets really bloody and violent and hateful, you cut the verse off right there because it's like this beautiful passage, lo, you formed me when I was in my mother's womb and I am fearfully, wonderfully made and then skips over. So God, destroy them, break their teeth, crush them in the bones and, you know, destroy my enemies. They hate you. You hate them. Bring it on. And then people think, oh, it's funny how Christians so selectively read the Bible. It's really a violent. I said, no, we, by the way, we know that's there. We know it's there. But we're given this idea in Scripture that in the book of Hebrews, if you believe what the author of Hebrews believes, if you're going to take the Scriptures seriously, the Scriptures tell us how to read the Scriptures. And the Scriptures tell us how to read the Scriptures. Very self-referential. It's like postmodern, way before House of Leaves or any of those narrative within narratives were... Well, anyway, within the scripture, it says, we used to see a dim shadow, but now in Christ we see the startling, crystal clear revelation. We had an imperfect revelation. Jesus is the perfect revelation. And what that says is, when we encounter Jesus, he always has his eyes around us, and he points everything in the Old Testament. He goes, see that? That's, that's me. See that? That's me being patient with a bunch of crap, <laughs> you know? So the, the Old Testament is a divinely inspired record of people getting it and not getting it. And how beautiful Psalm 139 is an example of how we follow Jesus and how we read it today. It's, we notice, wow, David is embracing violence and terror, which, and then he's recognizing that he's an image bearer of God and precious, and very human life is precious even in the womb. The human life is precious. So how do these two things go? Well, some people have said, well, it's the Old Testament, so I, I love human life, but we still need to kill our enemies. And, but then we get this annoying passage in Hebrews that says, actually, Jesus, what we had was an imperfect revelation that was divinely inspired and recorded so we could see how Jesus addresses the human heart. And what I'm encouraged by 
is David missed the boat. And what we know the fruit of David's like penchant for that kind of thought eventually led him when he had a non-consensual, probably rape uh, relationship with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband in an attempt to cover it up. We see that that violence towards the enemies of God just evolved towards violence of heart in general. We see when David wrote, may the children of your enemies be dashed upon the rocks, along with saying amazing things of God, we saw the fruit of that violence in him raping Bathsheba because no one can say no to a king, so it's a power issue, and uh, murdering Uriah's wife, his, her husband. So what we see is in the passage we read, we read how people can be part Babylon and in line with the Spirit. And guys, when I think of myself, I am a person of God. I feel like I'm filled with Jesus' Spirit. And I still got a little negative tags on the end of any chapter I'm writing in my life. And the good news about this is we can be fearfully and wonderfully made by God and even magnify His goodness and point out the good attributes of Jesus at the same time be total you-know-what. Those both can be true. And even in scriptures, God is telling us in Psalm 139 that I'm not surprised by this. I'm not surprised by this. You can worship me with the most amazing spirit-inspired words in one second, and then the flesh can take over, and the Holy Spirit's going to bring all to recollection. And the Holy Spirit, the, the inspiration of the Spirit, part of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is authenticity. The Spirit brings authenticity that we do not embrace in our culture. There is no spin with the Holy Spirit. So all this to say, we're going back to Daniel. We've got, we've got a, a ram with horns, and this ram is described as having one horn longer than the other, probably maybe Nebuchadnezzar this long, and then uh, uh, Belshazzar maybe had three years, and, and the horn is chasing in every direction, basically goring and lacerating everywhere it goes. But then we've got a floating goat or a flying goat, so a flying super goat. Um, I'm telling you, if Jesus came to 1960s to current Japan, this would have all been like a kaiju monster film. Can you imagine? Like Godzilla, Mothra, Mecha, Godzilla, Ghidorah, you know, maybe even a little. Who's the flying turtle with rockets in his rear end? Gamera. Think, who said that? Dan, okay, one other person is a nerd like me. You have Gamera. So imagine he was taking horrific images from then, but it really sounds like. But instead of being like laughing at that imagery, this stuff troubled Daniel. So obviously these had a Lovecraftian horror movie vibe to them, as I said last, night, last time. But in these visions, he's actually on a business trip. It says this, in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In my vision, I was beside the Uli Canal. I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And there, be, there were long, and one of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south, and no animal could stand against it. None could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. So this representative of Neo-Babylon, this successor to Babylon, is summarized by it did whatever it pleased. It's like, do what you want to do. That's one way, it, when they talk about someone that lives with no moral compass in the English language, the term libertine is used. It means someone that, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But in the 1940s, the term libertine 
like was often used in literature to refer to someone that just was a hedonist. And it just means do whatever you want. So the OS of Babylon, and even the difference between our Babylon and that Babylon is in our Babylon, we all get to be the, the ram that tears people up with doing whatever we want. And then, uh, so Daniel addresses the idea with the, all these, these pictures is that you can still follow God no matter who's in charge. Faithfulness starts now. And no one has to win any particular election for the people of God to do the things of God. We do not, the followers of Jesus, whether you're in Shanghai, China, or Columbus, Ohio, followers of Jesus never need the powers to align with them to do the work of God. I have a dear friend who uh, found Jesus, who, who was quarantining us with us uh, during the beginning of COVID, a young Chinese woman, many of you met, who came to know Jesus while she was here. Both her parents worked in an official capacity. And she ended up embracing Jesus while she was here and went home, and her parents just jumped on board and started hosting a group. Okay, I wanna be, I'm trying to be... I'm, very uh, non-specific, but hosting a group. So basically, people who work for the government started hosting an underground illegal church that get you thrown into prison or an internment camp as soon as they heard about Jesus. And there was no, in their, this person's communication with us, there was no mention of them lobbying to try to get the, the Communist Party to embrace Christianity. They're just like, we're just going to do it. And that is the flow of Holy Spirit living, is we don't rubber stamp things by our prevailing culture. We just do it, and you know how you begin every service? You worship. And what I saw, it, it, it literally took a week for this family to understand the dynamic of Christianity that our nation of individualism, majority of people that profess Christ don't understand what they understood in a week. And that, and that is, I think part of it is because of their lack of freedom. They've only got one. When you go to the freedom shelf of the supermarket, there's not a million sources of freedom. There's one menu item, and that's Jesus. Jesus gives freedom. So, and when you're in Babylon, you serve and love the Babylonians. You don't culture war the Babylonians. You don't hate whoever you think Babylon is. You clean their toilets, you scrub their streets, you repair their infrastructure, and you serve under the king, but you sure as heck don't bow down to their idols. You're in, but not of. You're not separate. And guess what? There is no reference. What I love about this imagery is it keeps from naming individuals as the enemy, and it keeps it cosmic. Now, we know from history that this stuff, basically, what happened between the Old Testament and New Testament? We've got this... Hundreds of year gap, like 400 years or something like that, 400 some, 420 years, 420, oh, uh, Israel's getting stoned at the time. But we have this 420 year gap or whatever between the two. What happened? Well, it's covered in Daniel. All these little cosmic pictures of Daniel say what happened up until like the time of Christ in these pictures. So Antiochus Epiphanes comes and he sacrifices, he, he's the, 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 the super duper horn of uh, Goaty McFlying Goat. Goaty McFloaty, right? Who comes later on. So, um, uh, 
And then, one of, and then out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and the east and towards the beautiful land, a.k.a. Jerusalem. It grew until it reached the host of heavens and threw some of the starry hosts down to earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be a great commander of the army of the Lord. And it took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord. And the sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and daily sacrifice, they were given over to it. This entity prospered in everything it did. And the whole nation of Israel was crying just like Anderson. Tears of lament. Thank you for being my hype guy, man. And the surrender... The vision concerning the daily sacrifice. Wait, wait. The truth was thrown down the ground. Then I heard the Holy One speaking. And another Holy One said to him, How long will it take for this vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice. The rebellion that causes desolation. The surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. And he said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconstructed. So really quickly, what happened was in Tychus occupied the temple... Uh, it talks about the hosts in the Lord of hosts. Well, the hosts, the people that hosted people in the worship of Yahweh, the one true God, were the priests. And they killed all the priests. And that's what the imagery of the stars falling from the sky. No, they didn't believe that actual solar entities were going to come and crash, onto, be shrunk by pin particles and crash to the earth or something. No, it, it basically meant the, the host of God, these people, these luminaries of the faith, so to speak, lose their lives, and then Antiochus turns it into a bacon food truck. He sacrifices pigs on the altar and everything. How long will this add? Now, it seems clear in the English. It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, but that is just one way to translate it. It could be 2,300, meaning uh, uh, 1,350 evenings and 1,000, oh, 1,150 evenings and 1,150 mornings, which combine to be 1,000 whatever days. Other people think it's, it's 2,300 night and day units, which means 2,300 days. And still other people just say, well, it's symbolic. Well, here's the thing. No matter how you work it out after the fact, none of the numbers come out right. But here's a good way to read scripture when it goes to numbers, is the Bible is not as concerned about mathematics as narrative symbolism. In numbers, whether it's seven, Seven means complete. So is there a seven-year tribulation, or is it a complete time of suffering? We don't know. For all these numbers, when you read the Bible, be very careful at getting, your, getting distracted by your calculator that you missed the message. There are whole ministries based on studying the calculator, and meanwhile, those ministries also will talk about how some enemies are worth hating. We literally had someone in the second year of our church come and preach and I didn't expect what they were going to preach and they talked about how eternity is written in everyone's hearts and God's working on every people then he gave an exception clause for Muslims and I'm like, you, your whole life's career has been writing books about how eternity is written in everyone's hearts and then you spend most of your message talking about there's one people group that don't have eternity written in their hearts man, I had a huge amount of damage control to do after that oh my gosh it was awful. And this is a guy who was one of my heroes, but I talked to someone that knew him and said he had to kind of break down and found some American publishers that still wanted to publish his books, even though he contradicted his whole ministry. Well, anyway, some of you know who I'm referring to. But anyway, this idea, don't, let, don't pick up your calculator, pick up the word. 
and read it. So what we do know is those empires referred to did come to an end. And just like this was written while Babylon was still in charge, but it gave enough examples of Babylon is going to continue on. Babylon after Babylon. Okay, we're five after. So um, I think the point is, is the whole of Daniel points to the future peace eventually coming. And the whole of Daniel is about being faithful in the here, serving in our Babylons. Serving in the context of our Babylon and being like totally sold out, totally yielded to Christ within our Babylon. Not hating Babylon, but being different. A lot of people think they hate difference. A lot of people, you know, the, the, uh, the human species is skewed to hate difference and fear the other. And the way we become more human, like Jesus the most human, as, as Jesus and the Holy Spirit build our empathy... Our capacity of hate diminishes as our capacity to love grows. And what happens then as we are ruling against Babylon, fighting against Babylon, is we can be with difference and not fear difference. And that is how to be faithful in the United States of America is all of us have people who we either ideologically, politically, uh, aesthetically are opposed to. All of us have people that we believe in one shape or another have contributed to the demise of other people. All of us either personally or we're connected or know of people that we believe are behind policies that cause suffering. And our question is, how do I wash their feet? How do I not engage and be corrupted by their crap and still serve? How do I become Babylon's janitor without becoming Babylon? Now, there's this, there's this deal where uh, Daniel gets the interpretation. I'm not going to reread that. I'm not going to read that bit. But at the end of it, Daniel writes, he gets interpretation and he says, the person says, hey, write it down. But essentially he says, write it down, but don't bother trying to understand it. Because he's sealed up for the future. It's going to happen, but you're not going to understand it. So Daniel basically writes a record that even after getting the interpretation, it's obscure to him. But... Daniel, we know this happened in third. This happened early in the reign of Belshazzar. We know that Daniel continued at least for twenty or so more years in total faithfulness. Something about this vision and the other visions empowered Daniel to remain faithful. Daniel didn't understand the vision, but he understood God's got him. God's got a plan, and God's plan of prospering and caring for us is not delivering us from hard circumstances immediately. God's plan is showing us his face amidst the horrible circumstances. Whether we are suffering because of external Babylon or we are suffering because of internal Babylon. If we are suffering the oppression of our own selves, engaging in damaging practices, damaging behaviors, you know, uh, whether uh, sex addiction, drug addiction, abuse of any good resource turning into something that's bad, internal Babylon. We can be faithful, and God can pull us out of that. And we can, amidst the terrible suffering and terror and upheaval in nation after nation ruling over Daniel, we can be faithful without missing a beat if we lean into God. And part of how, why I know this is true is God was able to engage King David when King David was half a Babylon. 
King David was half Babylon, he could still change. And a lot of, listen, all of us are half Babylon, or 40% or 60% or whatever. But here's the deal. The Holy Spirit is here today, and God is here today, not to have us point fingers at others, but it says when Daniel was overwhelmed by this vision, he fell asleep. What it means, like, I think Daniel fainted of fear, and God picks him up. God, you know, God says, fear not, and then God picks you up. God picked Daniel up. When we are overcome by visions of Babylon, we think there's no hope, God will pick us up. And God is here to pick you up today and dust you off. And we, today is the day. Many of us have something, some bit of Babylon to repent for. And repent doesn't mean be ashamed. Repent means acknowledge. Don't undersell it. Acknowledge your screwed up Confess it to someone else. Have them pray for you and do the opposite in the community of like-minded people who are attempting to do the same thing. So let's stand. So Jesus, uh, long before Babylon, there was Egypt. And a big part, actually, the Old Testament and the Torah were compiled and put in their final form together while Israel was in Babylon. So when people read about Egypt, just like we're reading about Babylon to be faithful and now, the people in Babylon read about Egypt to figure out how to be faithful under Babylon. And in the old Exodus narratives, we have Passover. And it's this meal that accompanies great violence towards the enemies of God. And then Jesus takes their symbol of freedom and he makes it a symbol of freedom of Babylon of the world. And that is he takes the bread and the cup of Passover in the same way Jesus came on a donkey to one city, but he returns to the whole world, he magnified this Jewish ceremony to all peoples and every tribe, tongue, and nation, saying, we embrace the story of the broken Savior, the spilled blood of Jesus, and that means we embrace the suffering of Jesus. We take the cup of suffering onto ourselves, knowing that we're joining him in his building of a new world. And because of this hope of the future, we live by the future's rules, in the future OS, now. We live the future. We live the future. And if it happens to, sometimes living the future goes alongside the law. Sometimes my friends leading a house church in China, their entirety of living the future is illegal, and they do it. So whether illegal or illegal, that's why we talk about justice, not laws. Because sometimes justice and laws overlap, but we've seen in our history and the history of every other nation, a lot of times they don't. It used to be the law that uh, black folks didn't constitute entire human beings. That was, that was lawful, but it wasn't just. So we're going to take the bread and the cup. This is how we pledge allegiance to our king. We embrace suffering and have hope for tomorrow. So Lord Jesus, I ask your presence on these elements. Name the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Opa. Thank you, Lord. And we're going to have, if we, we have people here to pray for you, we can get a couple other, we, we need some guys over on the side too. And many of you need prayer today. Make sure you get it. Lord bless you. God of love. Thank for this week, I brought this up last week. Any of you that are in the process of self-harming or contemplating self-harm, I specifically feel that God is wanting to begin a process of setting you free with that here through the beginning of prayer. So get prayer if that's you or if anything. Lord bless you.